If you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, or if you have a tablet or device you're going to use, you can flip on over to there. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, one announcement that I wanted to just put on your radar, February 20th, February 20th, in two weeks, we are actually going to be installing our new church planter and assistant pastor, Brian McDonald, uh, who many of you heard a few weeks ago that we are planting a church this year. We're going to be talking much more about that at our vision night in a few weeks as well. Um, but I wanted to let you know to make sure you're there at that service because uh they will be going out later this year or possibly January of next year. Uh, but for that period of time, uh, he's going to be on our staff and an assistant pastor here being prepared to be sent out with their group. And so we're really excited about that. We'd love for you to be a part of that celebration. That's February 20th, okay? February 20th. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 7, going down to verse 14. Hear the reading of God's word. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, all things in him, all things in him. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we come to your word asking that you would show up by the power of your spirit to speak to us in your word about your son, Jesus. Help us to see him clearly. Help us to lift him up and to be in adoration and worship of him for all that he has done for us. And Lord Jesus, may you get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, our family took a trip across the country and we were visiting some extended family. My cousin was getting married and um, my great-great-grandmother at the time was about to turn 90. And so this was an opportunity for us to kind of have almost a mini family reunion because everybody was going to come for the wedding. And so uh, we, we got all the kids ready and excited about this trip. They had never been on a plane before. And so we're kind of talking to them about what it's like to be on a plane. And our oldest daughter, Zoe, she was looking forward to it for weeks. Like she couldn't stop talking about it. She was, you know, imagining what it's going to be like to be up in the air and fly. And, and so when the day finally came and we make our way to the airport and we get into the plane and we're sitting in our seat, Zoe is there, you know, pushing her way towards the window to get the window seat because she wants to see what it's going to be like. And so she pushes her way through everybody, sits in the window seat and presses her face up against the window and, you, you know, her eyes are like as big as they could possibly be. And I said to her, you know, honey, what do you see out there? What, what are you so excited about? And she says, Daddy, I see planes. 
tons and tons of planes. And I said, well, yeah, we're on the runway. There's lots of planes. We're not the only plane. And, and she said, well, when are we going to fly? When are we going to fly? And so I said, well, we got to wait our turn. And so finally it became our turn. And, you know, the plane gets lined up on the runway and it starts accelerating. And then, of course, lifts off the ground. And she's looking out the window, even more excited now. And I said, now what do you see? And without missing a beat, she says, I see our house. There it is, right there. It's like, honey, we're... We're in Orlando still. That, that's not our house. But I see our school. It's right there. But in her mind, like she, she could see the world now. She could see everything. And so it gave her a perspective that felt like I, I could see all that you could possibly see. I mean, there's a sense that perspective makes you feel that way, right? That perspective, when you're able to step back and you can see the whole, it, it gives you a sense that, that I, I can understand now. I can understand what's really happening. And sometimes it's really hard to do that in our life, isn't it? Have you ever struggled to get perspective on something? I mean, it might be because, you know, you're so close to the ground, right? You're so close to the piles of laundry and dishes in your kitchen and the to-do list that keeps growing. And, and you're struggling because, you know, the bills seem to get higher and the bank account seems to get lower. And it doesn't seem to really be making sense and... And you're stressed about something at work, and then you got this relationship that's struggling over here, and all these things are going on, right? And it's hard sometimes to get perspective. It's hard sometimes to slow down and ask the question, what is God doing in my life? Sometimes it's even harder to ask the question, what has God done? Right? Not just what is He doing now, but what has He done in the past? And if we don't have perspective, it's, it's really hard to make sense of our past and our presence. And our view gets too small. And this same struggle, this struggle that is in all of our lives, can happen with the church. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, none of us ever sees the church whole and complete. We have access only to something partial, sometimes distorted, but always incomplete. Always incomplete. Right? What he's saying is all of us in our experience of the church, it's limited, right? It's limited by uh, the access we have maybe to our geographical location. We live in Lakeland, Florida, and maybe you haven't been to many churches outside of Lakeland, Florida, or maybe you haven't been to many churches outside of the United States or, or our continent or whatever it is, but you're, you're limited by your geographical location. Or you might have limited access to other theological and denominational backgrounds. Or you might have limited access to this historical moment and, and you don't really understand what the church was like a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, right? And so we're limited. What we experience is just a small toenail of what the church is. Right? That, that's the perspective, and yet God's work, even though that's our experience, His work is cosmic. It's massive. Yeah. And this is what we see in Ephesians. And so today we're continuing our series in Ephesians, and we're calling it On Being the Church. And Paul has opened this letter, and we looked at it last week. Uh, in this opening, he, talks, uh, or he opens with a, a hymn of praise. 
He opens with this praise that, that just kind of keeps spilling out over him, and, and he, he opens it thinking broadly about the church and broadly about God's work, and it's almost as if Paul is flying over the historical work of God, and, and he's trying as best he can to describe what he sees. And what he sees is very Trinitarian. What he sees is he sees the Father choosing and planning and initiating this work, and then he sees the Son accomplishing this work, and then he sees the Spirit applying this work in the church. And, and so what he sees is Father, Son, and Spirit working together to bring about this incredible cosmic work. And so last week we looked at the Father, and this week we're going to look primarily at the Son and the Spirit. How do they complete the work? How do they bring about this incredible work that God is doing? And so first, we're going to look, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at the blood. The blood. Look at me at verse 7. Paul goes on in this hymn to say this. He says, in him, speaking of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, Paul, he, he's drawing upon a metaphor from their Roman culture, this, this common practice of, of releasing something that was in bondage. It might be a possession that you put up, that you pawned at the shop, or it might be a slave that you owned, or a house that you were under on the mortgage, whatever it was. It, it, in their culture, uh, if you were going to release something, it was this, this idea of it being redeemed. And so the, the redemption was always the result of a ransom being paid. And so there's this ransom price that has to be paid. And Paul tells us right here in Ephesians what the price was. He uses this short phrase. He says, through his blood. Through his blood. Blood was the payment. Blood was required. Hebrews 9 will later on tell us, it says very frankly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do you hear that? Without the shedding of blood, there is no possibility of forgiveness. And so he's saying it has to be through the blood that he brings this redemption because the bondage of sin is only broken by blood. That's how you're set free. And really what Paul and, and, and Hebrews is drawing upon is all the way back to the, the Passover story. The Passover story was the central image of, of this idea of the blood. And if you know the story of the Passover, or maybe you're not as familiar uh, with it in the Bible, but the Passover was the night that God showed up to set his people free. And they had been in bondage for 400 years as slaves in Egypt. 400 years in Egypt. And each year after year, they're losing hope that God would ever show up. And then God shows up to Moses and he tells them, I'm going to set your people free. Go to Pharaoh. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he tells him what God says, you know, let my people go. Whoops. And, and, and of course, Pharaoh, he doesn't want to hear that. Pharaoh's benefiting off of this system of injustice, right? Pharaoh doesn't want to listen to, to anything. He, he gives them a couple yeses, but they're not for real. And of course, each time God says, okay, I'm going to send a plague, and, and he sends all these plagues. He sends gnats and, and, and boils, and, and he, he turns the Nile into blood, and plague after plague, Pharaoh continues to not listen. And so God says, okay, it's time for the final plague. And he tells Moses to go warn Pharaoh, and he still doesn't listen. 
And then Moses goes and tells all the people of Israel, tonight God is going to show up and he's going to deal with our bondage. But you need to take a lamb, a lamb without blemish, sacrifice the lamb and then take the blood of the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of your house. And when God shows up and he sees the blood on your house, he's going to know that that blood has already paid for you. He's going to know that the blood of the lamb replaced the blood of this house. And so because of the blood, he's going to pass over. That's where the name comes from. And so you're not going to be judged, but if you have the blood, you'll, you'll be safe. And then Jesus, hundreds of years later, as they're celebrating the Passover meal, as they've done year after year after year in their tradition to remember that night, Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, right? It's the end of his ministry. He's hours away from going to the cross. And Jesus is celebrating the meal, and he's, he's presiding over the meal, which means he's explaining the elements that remember that night. And as Jesus is explaining the meal, he lifts up the bread, and everyone at the meal expects, them to, or expects him to say what was the traditional liturgy, which is, this is the bread of affliction our ancestors suffered so that we could be free. Right? That's what they said year after year after year. But Jesus raises the bread up, and instead of saying that, he says, this is my body broken for you. I mean, they would have been shocked. Who does Jesus think he is? He's claiming to be the Passover lamb. And then he shocks them again. See, there were three essentials at the meal. There's lots of things that happen at the meal, but there's three essentials. You have to have bread, you have to have wine, and you have to have a lamb. They had the bread, they had the wine, but there's no lamb. Go back and read the Gospels. There's no mention of a lamb at the table. The reason there was no lamb on the table is because the lamb was at the table. Jesus was saying, I am that lamb. I am the one tonight who will come to save you, to shed my own blood. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. I will be the payment. The payment that you've been looking for. Jesus is the lamb for our liberation. He, he is the one who sets us free, right? And he sets us free, first of all, from guilt. That's what Jesus does. By shedding his blood for us, he is liberating us from guilt, right? Sin brought us into this relationship with God where we, in, in relationship to a holy God, we are not enough. We are guilty. We're guilty in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. We're guilty in our very nature. Right? What that means is we don't sin, or we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's in us, in, in who we are. And, and so because we're guilty, we stand before God not being able to do anything about it. Because it's not just what we've done, it's who we are. We can't change it. And then Jesus comes and he says, I will shed my blood to set you free of all of that. I will shed my blood to be broken for your brokenness, to be crushed where you deserve to be crushed, to be judged where you deserve to be judged. I will take it all upon myself. And so God will see you and he will pass over you. He will pass over you because this house has been set free. This house is free. But not only did he save us from guilt, his blood has liberated us from shame. 
right? Guilt is the result of what we've done. Shame is the result of who we are. You catch the difference, right? Guilt tells me I've done something bad. Shame says I am something bad. It it gets deeper into our identity of who we are, that we struggle. Am I worth anything? Am I good for anything? Do I have any purpose in my life? Can I ever get better? And so guilt is, is cured by forgiveness. But listen, shame is cured by something else in the gospel. Shame is cured by transformation. In other words, it's, it's replacing our shame with our honor. Where, where guilt is dealt because the, the lamb has taken away my sin and my status is no longer one who is guilty before God, but, but my shame is dealt with because Jesus has given me his life. He's given me his righteousness. He's given me a status before God that I'm no longer outcast, but I'm in. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. This is who I am. I'm free. You catch that? He deals with both our guilt and our shame to free us. And because of that, he frees us from all fear. See, if we have no guilt and we have no shame and we're forgiven by his blood and we're transformed by his blood, then then where is the power of fear? There's none. There's none. It, It has no power over us. I mean, someone needs to hear this today. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, fear has no power over you. It doesn't. Because there's nothing to fear. I I don't have to fear whether God loves me or not. I don't have to fear whether he likes me or not. I don't have to fear whether he's for me or not. I don't have to fear whether he's going to protect me or whether he's going to provide for me. Nothing is outside of his control, and I know without a doubt that his blood makes me his, and there's nothing now that I can fear. He's for you. He gave his son for you. You've been set free to live in that delight. And so Jesus' blood, this is his liberation to us, the, the personal side, but, but also it's more than just us personally. He also liberates us collectively. And this is the mystery that Paul then gets into next. And this is the second point, the mystery. Look at verse 9. Look at what Paul says. He goes on to say, making known to us the mystery of his will. I love this. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here it is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This this theme of the mystery, it's going to come up throughout Ephesians as we walk through the book, but but it's introduced right here. And what Paul is talking about, he's referring to um, this hidden plan of God to have cosmic renewal. In other words, it's the liberation, not just of us personally, but all creation, all things. All things that will be set free. It's what the Hebrew prophets talked about in the Old Testament. They called it the shalom of God. That this wholeness, this thriving, that God is going to renew all things. And and Paul actually uses a different metaphor here to describe the same thing. When he says unite all things in him, this word for unite means to to gather up all the pieces that have been dispersed. And, And really it's talking about, it's actually a math term too, like adding it all up, summing it all up into one. You're, you're gathering everything up that's different and, and dispersed and dismembered, and you're bringing it all in together. And in here, Paul says it's in Christ. And I love the way he says it. He says he's actually bringing two spheres together. Heaven and earth are coming together in one. 
It's what Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Jesus is praying for this, this uniting of two spheres together, all of it coming together in Christ. That's, that's the big, long picture. But Paul gives us a wonderful hint here how God is already working that out. See, this mystery of all things starts, as Paul says here, and he's going to expand this the rest of the book. It starts with these Jews and Gentiles who've now come together. He goes on in verse 12, look at what he says. He says, So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory, in Him you also. Right? Did you catch that? Paul is talking about we, speaking of himself, as a Jewish man. He's saying we as the Jews, we have been the first to believe in Jesus because Jesus came to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church was the foundation in which, and if you read the book of Acts, it went out beyond Jerusalem, right? He said we were the first to believe. But you also, speaking to the Ephesian church, which is primarily Gentiles, he's saying you also have been brought in. And then he goes on in the next part in verse 14 to say he calls it our inheritance. Did you catch it? So it's we, you, now our. Did you catch the movement? It's we and you and now it's ours. God is uniting all things in creation. He's uniting everything from heaven to earth, but he's going to begin with his people. Unity isn't uniformity, and oneness is not sameness, but this is his purpose. The gospel mystery is this this unity in diversity. That's this mystery that he's speaking about. Here's a fun fact. Every child, or I should say the average child, by the age of 10 has used over 700 crayons in their lifetime. So someone out there has researched that, but, but it came up as I was watching this TV show a couple years ago. They were talking about uh, how to make crayons. It was one of those uh, like engineering shows, and if you've ever seen one of those, they're fascinating as, as you watch the process of how these things are made. And they're talking about how they make crayons, and, and I won't get into all the details mostly because I can't remember all of it, but... But basically, they start with, a, with a, uh, a block of wax, and they melt it down, and they put these chemicals in it to make it you know, function the way it's supposed to function, and, and uh, then they put colors into it, and then they put it into this mold. And once it's in the mold, uh, it sits in there for a minute, and then they pop out, and they go onto this conveyor belt, and they kind of sort them out to which ones were actually properly created and the ones that weren't properly created. They have all the, you know, they might be deformed or have pieces sticking out or whatever, and they'll go back in to be kind of brought back in the process. But the ones that make it through, they then go into the next part and, and uh, they get some glue put around them and they put a label on them to match their color. And all this is happening at lightning speed. They're making crayons at 30,000 crayons an hour. That's insane. 30,000 crayons an hour. But at the end, by the time it makes it into the box, they've been examined over and over and over to see if everything matches up to be exactly the same except their color. That's the goal. The goal is that they, they are exactly the same except different colors. They want uniformity. They want sameness. Each color or each crayon is a different color, yet it's the same. And this, this, listen to me, is the mistake that so many people make in the church. That many people mistake oneness for sameness. We, we make the mistake that, that uniformity is what we're after, not unity. 
right? And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by sameness? Sameness means that everyone else has to be just like me, except maybe a slight difference in variation. Right? In other words, I'm, I'm glad to have people maybe from different cultures or different ages or different abilities or different races as long as they are like me. I'm glad to have them in my life as long as they think like me and believe like me and they worship like me and they pray like me and they vote like me and they whatever. They, they, they eat like me. All these things. I, I want them to be like me and that's okay. Because as long as, as, long as they're like me, then, then we can be the same. And this is actually very common in diverse churches. It's actually very common that we would expect this, this sense of, of being multi-ethnic but monocultural. Like we can be from different ethnicities or different backgrounds and different regions maybe even, but, but we have to have the same culture. I mean, you'll even hear churches talk about that, like, you don't fit our culture. What, what is your culture? Right? Or, or, or to say it another way, you can have different looking people in the same room with different backgrounds, but still one dominating culture. And it, it makes sense, right? We, we drift towards sameness. It's human nature. It's human nature that we would drift towards that. We, we want people who are like us. And, and listen, there, there's a space for that in your life. There's a space in your life for you to have people who, who don't rub you and challenge you the wrong way and, and, and make you think differently and stretch you. And, and you could just be yourself. That, that's cool. That, that's okay. But, but what Paul is describing here, this mystery of the gospel that brings all things together, is going to rub against that. It's going, to, it's going to go against that stream. It's going to challenge those assumptions. And, and this is why it, it's so hard to have deep community with different people. Because you've got to push past that, that difficulty. You've you got to push past the, the awkwardness and the offense and, and the burdens that you're bearing. There, there's so much that you have to say, I'm willing to, to dive into those things. And this is why around here we, we like to use the term, we prefer the term cross-cultural instead of multicultural. Not that multicultural is bad, multicultural is, is okay, but, but cross-cultural, it, it implies, it assumes that there's some kind of movement. There's some kind of movement towards the other person. I'm going to leave my culture and go into your culture to understand, to listen, to grow, to have you challenge me so that we can sharpen one another. You hear that? That, that, that's what it's talking about. And, and so it's this unity, not uniformity, but it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by accident. It's going to take this, this idea of oneness, meaning that we celebrate one another the way God has made us. There, there's strength in our diversity. There's strength in, in the different gifts and the different experiences and the different uh, realities that you've grown up in or, or that you have even today, whatever that may be. And it might be your spiritual gifts. It might be your culture. Whatever God has designed you to be, you bring that into the body. And we each bring that to the body in this mystery of what God is doing to unite us together. And so instead of isolation, we find ourselves in this body united in one head, Christ. United by his blood that beats through the whole body. And God has been working in this way for, for centuries, and, and this is the mystery, but this mystery is secure, is what Paul goes on to say next, as he, 
closes out this hymn with what I want to call the seal. The seal. Look at verse 13. Paul closes this way. He says, In him you also, speaking to the Gentiles in Ephesus, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, if you remember last week, I said that this is one of Paul's longest run-on sentences in all of Scripture. And Paul is finally closing out this run-on sentence. And by the time we get to the end of the run-on sentence, you realize that we are in the midst of something cosmic, something grand, something that we can't even describe. Paul doesn't even have words for it. And as you see it, you see that God is, is the one who initiates all of it. He's the one who starts everything in this work. And so you see that God is the one who chose us. God is the one who blessed us. God is the one who redeemed us. And now he says God is the one even who seals us. He's the one who seals the deal. There's not a single verb in all 201 words in that sentence that, that calls us to do something. Isn't that fascinating? No commandments, no requirements, no laws, no assignments. And yet... We're still a part of it. Again, Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, not a single verb leaves us out of the action. We are not spectators to a grand cosmic show. We are in the show. We're just not running the show. You catch that? I love that. It's God is doing all of this, and he's inviting us in. He's bringing us in and, and including us in this work. But he is the one who's running it all the way to the end. And so he says there's a seal the seal of the Spirit is the guarantee of the more that's to come. Right? The, the Greek word here for seal is an araban. Or it, it means a, a down payment. And, and, and it's actually used today in modern Greek to, to talk about an engagement ring. So like if you gave somebody an engagement ring, that would be your araban. It's, it's the sense that this is, this is just a piece of what's more to come. We're, we're going to enter into marriage and this is the promise. This is the deposit, the down payment of that. The difference here, though, is when Paul says that God has given us a down payment, he, he's saying that, that uh, the, the, the promise and the down payment are, are not two different things. In fact, the, the down payment itself is a portion of what's actually more to come. It's, it's a foretaste, an appetizer of our inheritance. And, and so what we have now in this Holy Spirit that God has given to us, we have more that's going to come. As incredible as it is to know God in the way that we know Him now, the fullness that's to come is even more. Yeah. What's to come is all things, he says. What's to come is imperishable. What's to come is undefiled. And so we see that our inheritance, this, this beautiful gift that God is giving us, it's sealed and secure by His very Spirit. There's a guy named Stephen Thomas who's a programmer in San Francisco and he has two guesses left on a password that's worth $220 million. $220 million. The password will unlock this small uh, hard drive known as an iron key. And this hard drive holds on it the passwords to 7,000 Bitcoin. This is a true story. 7,000 Bitcoin. And Mr. Thomas, he uh, wrote the password down on a piece of paper and lost the paper. 
And so he, he has since then thought, well, you know, this is, uh, you know, I, I normally use the same passwords, and so let me just guess and see what happens. And, and so he guessed a password that he usually uses. That was wrong. He guessed another password that he usually uses. That was wrong. Guessed a third time, and that was wrong too. And then he started to panic because he knows that the software that they use for that only allows 10 guesses and that it encrypts all the information forever and you'll never have it again. And so since then, he has guessed all the way to eight. He has two left. And this is what he says as I was reading this article. He, he was interviewed by, uh, I think it was the New York Times, but he was saying this. He said, I would just lay in bed and think about it. And then I would go to the computer with some new strategy, and it wouldn't work. And then I would be desperate again. Desperate for the password. And, and the article said, of the existing 18 million Bitcoin, if you don't know what Bitcoin is, go Google it. Of the 18 million Bitcoin, they estimate that 20%, it, it, it's, it's around $140 billion worth of Bitcoin is, is lost in a digital wallet. Think about that. With no guarantee that they'll ever get it. Listen, this... This is not the inheritance that God has given to us. Yeah. What, what God is saying here is he's saying this, this inheritance I give to you is, is sealed by me. Well, we have an inheritance that cannot be lost. The, there's no guessing. There's no threat. There's no losing. There's no wondering. Am I going to have this one day? This is what 1 Peter 1 says. He says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. See, what Jesus has purchased for us, the Spirit has sealed for us yeah. by His very blood. We're enjoying the deposit of it now, but the deposit to come is even greater. Well, what we enjoy now is the deposit of His security, the deposit of His grace, the deposit of His faithfulness, the deposit of His joy, His life, our life for Him, all of it. This is ours now, but don't forget the best is yet to come. The mystery will one day be fully known. The cosmic work of God will be finally complete. Every tear will be dried, every tribe will be reconciled, every hurt will be in the past, every sin will be washed away, every language will be lifted in praise to the Lamb who sits upon the throne. The best of our joy is yet to come. The best of our days is yet to arrive. The best of all creation is yet to even be seen, because God will one day finish what He started. He will bring about His purpose in Christ. And one day he will unite all things. All things. That's his hope for us. And so I want to ask you as we close, is, is your joy in this Jesus who gave himself for you? Because what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to unite all things together, but that includes you. And the way you experience that, the way you can have my blood set you free, is, is this very simple thing, faith. It's faith alone. It's saying to God, I, I trust you. I trust that what Jesus did for me is enough. I trust that what Jesus did really did pay for my sin. I trust that what Jesus did really is reconciling all things. I trust that what Jesus did did what I can't do. And so I trust you. I give you my life. And when you say I trust you, 
I put my faith in you. That's where the joy comes. That's where the freedom happens. It's in him. All things in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you've done. As we sang earlier, it's blessing upon blessing upon blessing. All that you've done. We could sing that song a million years into eternity and it wouldn't be enough. To know that the vast cosmic work that you've done to save us all as wretched sinners who don't deserve anything. And yet you came and you set us free and you sealed us so that we can't lose it. We can't mess it up. We're free and we're free forever. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in that beautiful perspective that as we get caught up in the struggles of life and our own sin and misery and whatever it may be, God, I pray that you would help us to step back and see your work in the past, in the present, in the future is greater than it all. And one day, you'll bring it to completion. Thank you in Jesus' name.